0: All right, so welcome to Access Reality. We have here Scott MacArthur, who's a renowned TEDx speaker, HR consultant, business consultant. Um, Scott has worked for top organizations such as the UK Defense Ministry and UK Olympic Authority, and he currently runs Sculpture Consulting, which is an HR and business development firm focused on three key areas, people development, business development, and business innovation. Also in the past, he's been a rock music producer, which uh, maybe we'll get into. (laughs) and a research scientist also it's yeah. published in a vast array of areas such as leader development disease detection personal business transformation human resources thank you very much for being here scott
1: it's a pleasure to be here ali an absolute pleasure thank you for asking me
0: awesome great so uh, i listened to uh, your talks and i think one of them was the crux of it was that um we as humans tend to be resistant to change when we're faced with scientific facts uh, but we do respond to, we seem to respond to emotional appeal rather rather than yeah. actual science and facts. Can you elaborate a little bit on that?
1: Yeah, this, this is something that I, I became aware of many years ago, Ali, where um, I, I was training as a scientist and wondering why um, the, the, the public, if you like, didn't pay attention to what the scientists said, including, and when I say the public, I also mean, governments, politicians, uh, etc., marketeers even. And it it became just frightfully obvious that there were there were very few scientists who were very good at actually communicating with any impact at all the, the, the wonderful, beautiful findings of the scientific endeavour. And um, at that point, I think it was was back in the 80s, Ali, it was back in 1985, um, a chap called Carl Sagan, who I know you're aware of, um, came to Glasgow, where I I lived at the time. And I discovered this incredible man who was trying to explain the, the complexities of cosmology and astrophysics to the public. And I thought, oh, and that really... Lit something in me about you know why is it that people don't understand science? Why is it that scientists aren't given the sort of the I think the respect or the position that they that they deserve in society? And and that eventually led me to the, the, the talk that you kindly referenced there, my TEDx talk called Why Facts Don't Change People, because I really wanted to understand it. I just wanted to understand it. I mean, what, why? For example, do do quite intelligent people believe? that the earth is flat or that vaccines are bad or, you know, and and I don't believe in, in just saying these people are fools. They may well be fools, but um, I think you should engage with them to understand it. And and that has become something of an, uh, uh, an obsession of mine is to really understand why facts don't change people. You know, what is it about them that don't work?
0: So on the surface of this, you might think, um, scientists are closer to having the facts and the real answers in the world, but they're very poor at communicating them. And whereas charlatans kind of have a better way of communicating and reaching you emotionally uh, to get the message across. Um,
1: Uh, Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah.
0: You know, however, um, is there something deeper than that? Meaning that even if a fact was communicated in a very clear way to a person, but it's, it's it's just it's dry science, and it may not be what they want to do, like they may not want to change their habits or lifestyle Yes. Whereas somebody somebody else is appealing to some hidden latent emotion that reminds them of childhood that evokes certain memories and maybe maybe we are as a species just more responsive to emotions than facts
1: I think that uh, we might come back to facts later because the word facts. Means different things to different people, and I think it's worth explaining that a little bit, Ali. Um, however, the 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 key thing is how the story is told, and it's that that invokes the emotion, and it's that that can invoke a change. And one of the one of the examples I give in in one of my talks is about uh, vaccines, where people. Um, you know say oh wait a minute um you're telling me that vaccines contain mercury or formaldehyde or you know seriously toxic uh chemicals there is no way i'm going to give that to my children now on the face of it um that that's completely plausible i mean you know mercury's awful stuff formaldehyde's terrible stuff um but when i um explain to people actually um that there's more formaldehyde in a in an apple, and there is, you know, in in a in a standard vaccine, people start to go, oh, and I think it's that sort of um, capability that we don't teach scientists. Uh, I mean, I, I'm speaking at um, the University of Kiel, which is one of the English universities in September, uh, hopefully, um, and it's their scientific community that have come to me and said, "Teach us how to engage the public." Um, because scientists are so... Like, if i give you an example. Um, if you look at the, the, the study of the eye, the human eye, the, the numbers vary, but there are roughly 30,000 people across the world studying the human eye. And if you asked any one of them, how does the eye work? They'd all go, mm, I'm not sure. because Because they are all working in such a specialised part of the eye and they know how complex it is, they're just not sure. Whereas if you ask someone outside that world, say a a standard biologist, another type of scientist, how does the eye work? Then she'll tell you how the eye works. So oftentimes as a scientist, as a practicing scientist, you get so close to something, you can't explain it. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it's a virtue. I mean, I I just think we need more people like the late Carl Sagan um, or maybe Neil deGrasse Tyson's a, a more... You know, uh, up to date uh, name to mention, but we need more people like them trying to take what I call the meta. You know, getting up and and describing scientific um, evidence rather than facts in in a clearer way, and I think that would really really help. But this is root and branch, Charlie. This this can't just be done overnight. I mean, we we don't teach it well in our schools. We don't teach it well in our colleges and universities. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm not aware of any scientific course anywhere that teaches storytelling. So it's it's just not something they're taught.
0: So if you look at scientists as a whole group, yeah, um, you'll find maybe a small subset that is very good at communicating. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, however, if that became uh, a big part of what they do, wouldn't that be difficult to then be full-on and full-fledged uh, science mode publishing mode f- fully entrenched in that don't you have to distance yourself a little bit from that maybe in order uh, to in order to be effective
1: that's a very good point and indeed the, uh, carl sagan uh, got quite a lot of um, negative feedback from his scientific peers because he moved away from the laboratory And in the UK we have a fella called Brian Cox, I don't know if you've heard of Brian but Brian's another cosmologist and he still tries to do uh, scientific research in Manchester but he can't because he's on the television or he's touring or he's and I think that there almost needs to be a separate breed of scientist. Um, I mean I'm I'm not a scientist anymore, I was but I'm not now Um, and I could be one of those. I mean that's why I get asked by other scientists because I've got some scientific credibility And they say, well, okay, you understand the scientific method, Scott. Could you come along to us and almost explain to us what we are doing? It's quite odd, Ali. But I think you've hit the nail on the head there that a lot of scientists are worried about losing their credibility. And I think they've got a point there. Um, But that's a problem with the scientific structures. That's not a point. That's not the public's fault. I think we just need to understand that sometimes some of us scientists have got to take responsibility for the bigger picture. Um, you can't all just be head down the microscope. Some of us have got to raise our heads and they've got to be seen as just as important scientists as those that are doing the detail of, of the study in the eye or the brain or whatever it is they're, they're studying.
0: I think you're absolutely right in that the major problem would be their peers, is the yeah. other scientists. Because I first came across this, um, my genetics professor in university. Yeah. And... Um, somebody in the class asked a question and they they referenced a program done by David Suzuki. I don't know if you heard about that. Yeah. So that was, it it was kind of an episode was about genetics in the same field. And the genetics professor that we had uh, was a very respectful, deeply philosophical, uh, very, very respected guy. And he kind of put it down, said, Oh no, that's just, it's very light. It's not real science. It's not real. So it kind of gave me the impression, okay, so if somebody's then on television or um, communicating to the public, he's kind of looked down as say, that's not a real scientist.
1: Hmm. Well, I think that that's part of the problem, Ali. Absolutely part of the problem. We, we, we have to change that. Uh, and whether we have, I mean, in the, in the United Kingdom, uh, this is a good example, That there is one professorship in the United Kingdom for the communication of psychology, one and that's a, a chap called Richard Wiseman who is that professor and he's terrific, but that's it. Just one. Now that, mm. th- there's clearly something wrong. There's a gap. And and then when scientists get self-righteous about, um, well, the public don't understand science and they blame teachers or they blame, you know, even u- university lecturers, because let's face it, they're not up to date most of the time. They're, they're, they're lecturers. They're doing their job. Um, But I I think we need to change that mindset. And maybe it is about bringing people like me who have a scientific background, who have then left science, because many of us do leave science, because, you know, for various reasons, Um, but maybe bringing us back to actually help the scientists. And I I have to say, I am finding a fair bit of interest from from my uh, client base, to come and talk to scientists about doing storytelling, et cetera. So there is, there is an appetite, Ali, but it, it, it's going to take time.
0: So um, are you kind of implying that the science, science as a field needs to learn a little bit from what some people in business are doing? Yes. Um, yeah. In terms of marketing, um, how to appeal to people, um, I mean, some of the practices in business get borderline unethical, to be honest with you. Yes. That way, but are you saying that the science needs to learn a little bit, um, incorporate some of that in order yes. to be effective in its messaging?
1: Yes. I mean, there's a there's a good example where um, certainly in the UK it, it has. There's a, have you heard of the nudge movement? No. No. It's uh It's basically um, it, it's it's sort of psychology linked with economics where they try to encourage people to buy products and Thaler who was one of the is one of the great scientists in this field um, kicked this off and people like Daniel Pink who I'm sure you all have heard of have picked it up and and in the UK there's a there's a there's a there's a unit called the Nudge unit who are uh, trying to help people understand the, the 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 psychology of economics now I've got issues with it I don't think it's perfect but the British government picked up on this and actually brought them into the government fold and used them to help them with public understanding of policy. Now that's not the same as public understanding of science, but the Nudge Unit did very well. And in fact, um, and again, I've got, I've got some concerns about it, but the Nudge Unit or the the sort of what's happened post the Nudge Unit, because it's moved on now is being used by the British government as part of its uh, strategy um, against uh, COVID. So it is, there are examples but there aren't many um, you can see it in you know, the, the, the vaccination shambles. You can see it with some of the, the response to COVID that the, there isn't that that scientific knowledge. For example, what, what, a really good example. And um, again, I think it's everywhere in the world. Everyone's talking about social distancing. And that came from a scientist that 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 wasn't government. That was scientists, but that's a scientific mistake. The phrase itself, social distancing is fine but it's actually physical distancing. It's not social distancing. And that subtle difference has developed behaviors. People now think that it's about being socially distant. It's not. We need to be socially closer. Uh,
0: the, I'll, give you, the, I'll, I'll yeah. give you a very funny example. I This has taken such a stranglehold, this idea of social distancing. Yeah. That, you know, I had a friend that I wanted to uh, connect with. Yeah. And uh, just talk on the phone. And... Uh, she's like, no, no, these days we're not communicating with anyone. We're just, um, you know, we just hold down in our house and we, we're not really doing anything. So it's kind of like psychologically, it, it translates into we have to isolate from everything, every content.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it, and it's not right. Uh, and anyone that understands uh, whether it's viral or, or bacterial transmission understands that. But trying to get that across, and the problem there was the scientists who made that suggestion were, Economy-based economists, effectively, and that there are so many different colours of scientists that they need to get the right scientists, and that that that's part of the problem. And again, that's I wouldn't put that problem on on the government. I would put that problem on the scientists themselves because they need to understand that words change worlds, and that 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 word "social" is actually quite damaging at the moment. And uh, I wrote about this in the media recently, and I got quite a lot of people saying, "Oh my goodness, yes, it's absolutely obvious." But unfortunately, it's out there now, and it's gone viral. If you forgive me saying that. <laughs> yeah.
0: So you mentioned vaccines a few times here. Yeah. Um, have you had personal experience trying to communicate with people who are anti-vaccine?
1: I have quite a few, and in fact, I've got um, some friends who struggle with with the, the vaccines, and it um, it's difficult. It's difficult because, as I said earlier, you know, on on the, on the face of it, if you if you are not um experienced in understanding how these things work, it's difficult to say to someone who's got a baby, um, you know, we need to give this child this 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 injection that contains mercury. It's very difficult. And even with the 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 the, the related subject around autism, where I mean I frankly think that the individual responsible for that paper that was published in The Lancet should be in prison. Um, however, the horse has bolted so you have people all over the world who have heard things in the media, and it gets into their system. And unfortunately, the response—and I point at myself here as anyone else—hasn't been good. It hasn't been strong enough. We haven't really explained to people um, how important it is, and you know why do you think we don't have smallpox? Why do you think we don't have polio? Um, what's going to What's going to be the thing that's, that that removes COVID as a as a global pandemic? It's going to be vaccinations. But again, people don't always connect the dots, Ali. Uh, and to, to, to explain that to someone who hasn't got experience in the field is extremely difficult. And, and a lot of scientists um, and a lot of commentators in science say, don't engage. It's just a waste of time. Well, I don't agree with that. I mean, I, I, one, of the, one of my favorite um, quotes, and, and you may well have read me uh, saying this before, is from the Stoics. And this is the quote. It says, opinions are like nails, The harder you hit them, the deeper inside they go. Opinions are like nails. The harder you hit them, the deeper inside they go. And unfortunately, the majority of responses to the anti-vaccination movement just to say, oh, they're idiots.
0: Yeah, so I was going to say, yeah, you mentioned the paper in The Lancet and subsequently, so to speak, the horse is out of the barn now already. Um, Do you think the reason for that is because the kind of debate on it has been suppressed. You're immediately labeled if you raise this issue, uh, you know, as a crazy person or, you know, something, rather than actually addressing it scientifically and saying, no, The in terms of the concerns you're bringing up, this is the actual response to it. Yes. And and rather than having a debate as adults, it's been kind of like just labeling people and then suppressing the debate.
1: Yeah, I think that's right to some extent. Um, however, what I would like to say is, is the word dialogue being used a bit more because although um, like for example, I, I, I'm, I'm an atheist um, and I, and that means I don't believe in a supernatural God. That doesn't mean that if I meet someone who has faith that I go to them, you're a fool. Look at the teams you've got, you know, gandhi and you've got you know you've got some great you know uh, brains on on the the faith side and you've got some great brains on the atheist side and i think what we should be doing is encouraging us to find common ground and that's where i get i get frustrated I mean, I've, I've met richard dawkins and i think he's a lovely man um and in fact he's not in real life he's not the firebrand that he comes across in the media he's not he's just a lovely man um But he's been almost caricatured as this anti-faith guy. And he is an anti-faith guy, but he actually loves, um, you know, religious poetry, religious music. He loves it, you know, but he very rarely is ever quoted as that. And I think, again, it's not about debate. It's about finding common ground. It's about finding learning. And people often, when when I speak, if I do a keynote speech, I quite often use faith stories. Like I love the the, the Jewish faith, and I love the, the 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 Quaker faith, the Quaker movements. There is a lot there that people can learn from, that can use in the secular society. So I think that is how to do it. I don't I don't think it's about saying you're wrong. You know, I mean, some of these. I mean, you can, you can have a laugh. I mean, of course, if someone says something that's silly, you have the right to tell them they're silly, but. That won't change them. That will just make them more silly. That's why that quote's so important. You know, the, the opinions just get deeper. It doesn't solve anything. So saying to a flat earther, you're clearly a fool isn't gonna work. You know, you need to somehow engage them in the dialogue. Engage them in the discussion.
0: Yeah, now you mentioned Richard Dawkins and I, yeah. I think the this also cuts the other way. So uh, if you're religious and deeply offended by Richard Richard Dawkins ridiculing you or calling you know religious people names, yeah. If if you just ignore that and go because he's ultimately a scientist, if you just go read his books on yeah. evolutionary biology like The Blind Watchmaker, yeah. you have no choice but to like him. He's lovely.
1: Yeah, he's a lovely writer. Yeah, it, it is about the media again. But again, Richard isn't. If you look at Richard, he's not the guy like Carl Sagan, he's not the guy who stands up and can give the big picture. He, he is a, you know, he, he's into animals really. Um, and he's, he's, he's moved that into the human, the sort of thinking piece. And I, I, I hugely admire him, I, I'm, a, I'm a huge uh, reader of him and, and having I've met him a few times, but um, you're right. Uh, but again, it, the, the, the media, pick it up. Oh, this guy doesn't like God. And, and off you go, you know? And uh, I mean, I don't believe in taking offense. So if I, even people even get offended by me when, offended by me when I say that. So if somebody says to me, you've offended my faith, I say, well, that's your, your faith's problem, not mine. And technically I think I'm right, but is that going to help? No, it's not. So I've got to pull back from that. That, that might be my heuristic, you know, my, my rule of thumb that I might want to jump into that person but as a as a somebody who's trying his best, and don't always get it right, Ali, but trying my best to help this happening, I've got to have that these warning signs. I've got to understand my inner my inner dialogue in that in that area. Because I've got my own cognitive biases, I've got my own belief
0: system. Yeah. yeah. You're only human after all.
1: Aha, uh-huh, Yeah. And yeah, that's absolutely. why we have the scientific method. But but that's exactly the point though. I mean, scientists are human as well. And that's why we have the scientific method. Yep. Um, and that's not often understood either.
0: Yeah. Now with the vaccines, um, which seems like it's been a very big issue for decades now, but one issue we mentioned is the suppression of the debate and lack of effective counter arguments facing the head, on, facing it head on. Yeah. Uh, but could the other issue be, which is why it's so difficult and resistant to change. Could the other issue be is that it's not usually an isolated issue, which is they're just anti vaccines. It's rather a big part of it is people who have bought into other type of conspiracies and this is just part of it. That's why it's difficult to knock it down because you have to address the whole kind of problem. Is that what you find based on the people you say you've talked
1: to? Um, about well, there is a, it's difficult to be general about Ali because you know, this is such a big topic. Um, but there are people who like conspiracy theories. So you will get your flat earthers, your 5Gers, your, your anti-vaxxers. There are. I, I suspect, and I don't know this is true. I haven't seen the research, but I suspect there is crossover with these populations. Um, however, I, I do think that um, my my. I have a, and you call a belief. I actually think most people um, are decent, and if they are given the facts or the evidence in a way that they can understand, they will move towards it. So there are a lot of people who have been anti-vaxxers, who have, particularly in the United States, who have experienced uh, blooms of, of measles outbreaks. It's, it's shocking, it's absolutely shocking. And actually, I think some people should be in jail because of this, you know, that, that's how bad I think it is. But in some areas where that has happened and it's desperate that that's had to happen, people have said, oh no, wait a minute, maybe I got it wrong. And so people have moved back towards the, 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 the understanding that we need these vaccines. You see, again, no, I, would, I would take it a step further. I would also say that part of the problem is that we have a perception, and in some cases, a good perception of pharmace- pharmaceutical companies who in certain cultures, and, and I'm pointing at the United States here, they, they have an economic model. They don't have a, medicine, a medical model. They, they are looking to make cash. Now that would mean any anyone with any sort of normal brain would say, Oh, well, they'll want to sell their medicines. And actually they do. And actually there are examples where these companies have behaved badly. So they're not without they're not innocent, these companies. So actually the whole thing is a hotchpotch. You know, some of these companies are fantastic, they're ethical, they are they're operating beautifully, but others are not. So again, it's it's complicated. And and I think that's why I mean, I, I, I'm very, that's why I, I've said to you before, I'm interested in one of the reasons why we should go to Mars. You know, I think that's really important because it would stimulate a generation to think differently about this stuff. And it's going to have to be generational. This is not going to happen by Richard Dawkins changing his language or me doing this podcast or the, you know, the National Geographic having, you know, or, or the Discovery Channel suddenly rediscovering science. It's not, it, it's a generational issue. And Carl Sagan said in the 1980s, we have a problem. We have a world that's run by science and technology and our understanding of science and technology is gradually reducing. And that has continued since the 80s. So we need to rebuild that. And that's a generational issue. It's not something that you and I can solve on this podcast. I wish we could. <laughs> yeah,
0: well, it's quite an incredible um, paradox, actually. Um, so... Um, flat Earth, which again you've mentioned a few times, why yeah. has that made? <clears throat> why has that idea made such a resurgence? I mean, it sounds the first time I saw it, I couldn't believe it. Yeah. But like at this in this day and age, but is it is it just the fact that the internet makes it easier for people to watch videos and see what other people are saying? Is that yeah. the only thing, or is there something deeper than that? Or
1: Oh, that's a good question. I, I I suspect you're right about the one one of the unintended consequences of the internet and the proliferation of information uh, is that people can find one another who have unusual perspectives on on the world, uh, and I think that that's the reason. And then when someone shout, I mean, you know, you, you might have heard this in the media: if it bleeds, it leads. So if something is negative, if something is weird, um, it tends to get more press. So I think, and then that then grows. And then, for example, linked to that, you, you probably heard that the, the same group, it's very much the same group, think that, that we've never been to the moon. And even when you give them the evidence, they, they'll say, no, 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 we, we've seen the pictures, they're, they're all doctored, they're not real, um, it's a NASA conspiracy, and it's even been on Discovery Channel. You know, and so they even have pseudo-scientific, like I think the Discovery Channel is a shocking example of how bad things can get. You know, that, that channel now is full of Bigfoot, Loch Ness Monster, ancient aliens, absolute nonsense. It's entertaining nonsense, but it's nonsense. But people see that and it says science and they think it's real. So again, you know, that link between complexity, the media, poor scientific communication and the ability to find people with the same views all adds up to it being something that's laudable. The, 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 the 5G example right now that's gone all over the world is a great example where there is no evidence that 5G is damaging at all, but because there are some outliers saying things about it, it's taking off. It's exactly the same thing. And people are now burning down 5G pylons in the UK because of that, which is crazy. But that's what's happening.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I, just the, back to the flat Earth. I think Elon Musk uh, tweeted something saying, um, "How come there's no flat Mars society?" And <laughs> yeah. and I think one after that actually formed. There is a flat Mars society now there on Twitter. There <laughs> is, yeah. yeah. Um,
1: the other thing that that he said was he said, "Oh look, I'll take the top flat Earthers up in one of my spaceships." But they responded saying we wouldn't believe you because we would think you were faking the, the view. You know, you were, you, you've taken it somewhere, it's a, it's a studio, it's not real. So there's some people, unfortunately, um, we're never gonna change their minds.
0: Yeah. Um, overall, uh, would you say that humans in general are resistant to change?
1: Um, once they well,
0: have formed an opinion?
1: Um, this might surprise you, no, because think about it. We get married. We have children. We change jobs. All of these things are huge change drivers. Um, I mean, I don't know if you've got children, but I've got four. And my goodness, if you would if told me when I was 25 that by 50, I would have four children, I'd, I'd have said you were an idiot. You know, there's no way I would have done it, but I did it. So I think we actually quite often enjoy change but we quite often put not changing up as a barrier because we're not sure about changing, if that makes sense. So I don't think we're, we're particularly scared of it. I just think sometimes we, we, we are, are just not ready for it, not prepared for it. Um, and again, I put down the reason that I've done a lot of this in the organizations because you know I talk about the workplace of the future and I, and I try and get companies to think about how they change and how they develop. And a lot of that's very similar to the discussion we've had up to this point. You've got to explain to people why the change is a good thing. You know, what's in it for them? You know, what what, you know, if they don't do it, what's going to be the consequences of it? And then if they if they don't want to change, then they can just leave. You know, but but companies are quite resistant to being so honest with people. They want to coach them and you know gently take them along. And I sometimes think just be honest with people. You know, and 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 they will change. So I don't think we're I think there are parts of us that are resistant to change, but other parts of us just need our eyes opened up. And it's why, for example, I, I, I think things like travel is important because if you if you grow up in a little, little village, you know, on the outskirts of Toronto, um, you think that that little village on the outskirts of Toronto is the world. You know, everything that happens there is great or bad or whatever your perspective. Then when you go to Toronto and you go... <gasps> My goodness, really? You're suddenly your whole di- inner dialogue is, is changed. So that's why I think, you know, people should travel, should see different cultures, should read books that are not necessarily, you know, books they would be expected to read, because it just enables you to see there are different ways of thinking and different ways of being successful.
0: Yeah. Uh, does it seem that maybe in some regards we are open to change and we have no problem with it, going through different life phases or even changing what we said we would do based on self-interest or something? Uh, you know, so in some regards we're open to change, but in other regards we're, we are resistant?
1: Oh, yeah. No, there are things we resist, Ali. I mean, I've got no doubt that there are things we resist. So, for example, um, the the current public <laughs> health crisis that we're, we're experiencing, um who would have thought a month ago that most of the world would currently be sitting at home doing what they're told by the government? You know, we, we would all laugh. This is a science, it's a science fiction story. It just wouldn't. There's no way I wouldn't accept that. But, but we have changed because we're convinced, at least I'm convinced, And and most of us appear to be convinced by the evidence of people dying and and, and people getting, you know, uh, uh, been exposed to this horrible virus. So I think there is resistance, but I do think we we are capable of it, Ali, I really do.
0: Yeah, now this is um, interesting psychology, but do you think that um, it's easier to change when we just see that that's what everybody else is doing? Yeah, um, but it's more difficult when you go against the grain, so to speak.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's right. Uh, and and again, um, I mean, there's there's phrases been used that uh, I mean, like existential crisis and uh, you know global pandemic. Um, and yeah, that and I mean, I love science fiction, and um, there, there are many many science fiction books and films and stage plays even written about aliens coming to the Earth and how that unifies the Earth. And it drives different behaviours. I think COVID is probably the, be- the best example in human history, because although it's not it's not a devastating virus, you know, if you look at it compared to other viruses, it's not devastating. It's awful, but it's but but the way it's been dealt with, I think is quite interesting, because we have reacted, and it is almost like a spaceship appeared, and we're all going whoa, and we're slightly threatened by it, and we're not quite sure, how to, and we've all come together now. Not all of us. But you know, the majority of us have come together to respond to it, and and, and ironically, um, and this is you mentioned the word earlier, paradox. Um, I again believe the only way we can continue as a human race, the only way we can survive, is by coming together. So, globalisation in response to things like you know, artificial intelligence, biotechnology, nanotechnology, and um, uh, the, the COVID pandemic was completely expected by scientists there's not a shock in it at all I mean there's, there's the media saying no, it's a big shock it's not a shock every 10 years there's been something like this has happened and I think this could be the beginning of something quite interesting that shows us that we need to work together you imagine uh, oh thank goodness it's not happened but if if cl- like climate change is a good example if something devastating had happened to our climate globally you know it could be too late so maybe this is a signal to us to say, wait a minute, we need to start thinking globally. And although the irony is you've got a president in the United States who's you know, like this, you've got the United Kingdom who's just left Europe um, and all these weird and wonderful things are happening. And, and these are these are anti, these are paradoxical to where I think we need to be going. But I think this is part of the change process. I think actually, eventually there will be a United States of Europe. There will be a United States of the world. But if we don't do that, I do think it's the end of the human race uh, and small mindedness in the human race is so common. You know, people are loyal to their little village in uh, near Toronto, never mind Canada, never mind North America, never mind the, the Western culture, never mind the world, never mind, you know, I don't know, it just keeps going out and out and out. But I think we have to do that. Uh, and if we don't do that, um, the human race will, will come to a rather abrupt end.
0: Yeah, now, um, you're correct in saying that these epidemics kind of are happening all the time. Um, the the scale of this is huge, of course, but yeah. I haven't seen a response like this in my lifetime, at least, or that I've heard of in the last generation. No. Um, do you, as someone who kind of has your foot in the business world, and then you also were in the science world, yeah. uh, do you think the main long-term, the main fallout from this and the long-term effects are going to be economical rather than health?
1: Um Yes. <laughs> there you go. But just
0: the way we've we've responded to it is what I'm
1: saying. Yes. Yeah. I, I think what, I mean, this is pure speculation now. This is not, you know, just pure speculation, but I think it could lead to a rebalancing on how we manage our economies because after all um, money is just a made up thing. It's not real. It's a subjective thing. And, and even if you, look at, like, if you look at cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin, all the new currencies that are starting to appear, they're all just completely in people's imagination. They're not real. And when people say, oh, there's been a huge crash, that's not real either. <laughs> it's all about human behavior at the end of the day. So I think if we could somehow, and this is, this is obviously science fiction now, you know, in the short term, if we could somehow rebalance that, the dominance of the market over humanity, Um, Of course now I'm getting to dangerous ground I'm getting to political ground But I think that or The the balance of the individual against the team Against the group I think what positive thing could come of this Could be this could happen a little bit We could get a bit more of an equal Perspective, equalised perspective On these two things Because if you look at what happened Again in the United Kingdom In 2008 when the crash happened The British government bailed out the banks they 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 purchased the banks they saved the banks they've not done that for anything else ever you know they've only ever bailed out institutions that have an imaginary part in our civilization it's completely imaginary but now with this reality happening they're having to bail out you know companies big and small who are providing services or you know uh, are running companies that are about people coming together so i'm hoping that and I don't hold great hope in the short term, but in the longer term, maybe that will start to have an impact on how our politicians behave and how they drive our economies. So I think that the, the, the short term impact absolutely will be economic. but I think medium term could be we start to rebalance how we think about society generally. And that will be a huge challenge in the, the pure market led cultures like they have in America. In Japan, you know, I I mean, there are differences, obviously, but but these countries will find that very, very difficult. Um, And I don't know how that will play out.
0: Now, you you advise very big organizations, as we said, uh, that you've worked with before. But uh, you also have clients that I assume are small businesses too. Yeah, yeah. 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 And um, I just get the impression that some of the small businesses are not going to reopen, depending on Uh, how long this lasts.
1: I, I think you're right. Unfortunately, Um, I think there are many, many, many medium sized businesses will will go out of business as well. Um, And that that's down to the unfortunate fact that a lot of us run our companies on the edge all the time. We only have enough money in the bank to pay the the salaries for the next month. Um, And in fact, you can still run a successful business like that, but that assumes that we have that monthly income. Um, like I'm, I'm a, an ambassador for, for a local zoo here uh, called Twycross Zoo and Twycross Zoo is very well run by a, a very talented chief executive and she has always maintained that we must have three months income in the bank at any one time that amounts to about you know well, more than five million pounds it's, you know, it's not a small organization now she's had that money in the bank but that money is now running out so even although she has run that that zoo very very efficiently and and very productively, very successfully, she is now facing the end of June, and she's going to have a problem. Um, and I think that well, I think the zoo will be okay, but I think other organisations can't go to the banks or can't go to investors as easily. and Say, can you invest in us the short term to get us through this? So I think you're right. Yeah. My, my my business has gone to zero, Ali. I mean, I, I was running a successful speaking business. I was I did I, over a hundred uh, and thirty events last year, uh, over ten thousand people. Um, you know, and and in the last two months, nothing. You know, so my and, and I mean, pe- people are t- using this word pivoting, and I, I don't like the word. Um, but you know, g- change to online. Well, I, I I don't want to run an online business. I I I'm a people person who likes to work with people. It, this is great one-to-one on zoom works fine but if you're trying to motivate or inspire hundreds of people it's not the same it's just not the same
0: i agree with you 100 a lot of a lot of people are talking as if oh just shifting to online will be is no. the same thing it's not the same thing
1: it's not the same thing it's no not, i mean if you if you look at the research even before all this you know online learning it's it's okay you know, and but if you look at like MIT or any of the the top universities have been doing this for decades. They they've been providing this material for decades, but it's the tutorials and the seminars when the kids come together that they actually learn. It's not the online part of it. You know, it's not. It's not. There was actually there's there's a book um, by E. M. Foster who's a very famous author, and he wrote it in 1909, and it's called uh, The Machine Stops. I don't know if you ever heard of it. It's not that famous, but It's all about how we all end up in little pods communicating with each other over the ether, as he calls it in the book. And that's a hell on earth. You know, so if we keep going like this, you know, it it would be awful. It just would not be good for us. I think we're learning how to do it better. I think we're going to be better online than we've ever been. As a consequence of this, people like Zoom that we're using just now have had to improve their security. They've had to improve their bandwidth. So there will be better online learning and better online communications. That we are human beings, we need to be in groups. We are tribal creatures. That can't be done over the internet.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Now I want to circle back to how we respond to certain arguments or facts or opinions. Yeah. Um, what? So when somebody is given, um, you know, advice, let's say from a doctor, or from you know, yeah. to do something, and they don't want to really change do you yep. have any hacks for them as to how they could implement changes that they don't necess- that isn't compatible with what they emotionally want to do let's say
1: well that's a really difficult question and one that if I really knew the, the full answer to it would make me extremely wealthy ali um, oh, you'd
0: be an extremely wealthy guru <laughs> yeah.
1: um i think the the best example that i've ever come across was again a medical example where Uh, you may well have heard me speak about this, forgive me if I'm repeating something you've heard before, but where there was a group of people who were basically told that they had to change their diet or they would die. Uh, They had a particular heart condition and and there was actually 10,000 of them in the study. It was a major study and 90% of them chose not to change their diet. So they chose to die. So what's that about? You know, you you would think that, and if you extrapolate that into the organizational culture, if they won't change something that would help them survive, why would they change because there was a new system at work or a new brand at work? Well, the answer is they wouldn't. So in, the, in that research, there's a book, um, Change or Die, um, and it talks about the way you have to do it is chunk it down into very, very small pieces. So for example, If you say to your parent, if your child had this disease, would you change their diet? And they would say, yeah, well, of course you would. I would save their lives. So why are you not saving your own life? So again, it's about framing. So I think there are things we can do, Ali, but very, very difficult. Very, very difficult.
0: Yeah. And I know you've touched on your talks and uh, uh, writings on uh, basically um, fake gurus, so to speak. Um, or things that they, their main skill is they know how to market to you to convince you to buy it. That's their main skill, not the actual thing they're selling. Yes. Um, is there – can you give advice to anyone on – because now these are popping up, like, everywhere. Oh, oh Everywhere, stuff. yeah. yeah. Okay. Can you give advice on what to um, – not necessarily red flags because I think that's going to catch legitimate and illegitimate people, but yeah. how, how would you go about kind of deciding uh, for yourself yeah. whether or not that's um, something –
1: Really good question. Thank you for asking that question. That that, that is a, a cracker, uh, as I say in, in Ireland. Um, the the way I the way I look at it, uh, like for example, I'll name, I'll name one because I'm not I'm not going to ever go to him. I mean Simon Sinek, who's a very famous uh, business writer. He, he wrote that book called uh, Start with the Why, and and you know he's very famous and, and, and very good at communicating. But he's not a business person. His background was he ran an agency. He, you know, he didn't have lots of business experience. One of my other heroes, a guy who is a hero of mine, Sam Harris, who's a, a, a great thinker and neuroscientist and, and lifelong meditator, has never worked in a company in his life. He's never been in a company, right? So these people are giving us philosophical thoughts about how we should behave in companies. And you know what? I think that's fine. I think that's really helpful. Um, I think sometimes they overclaim their ideas. I think uh, you know, start with the why wasn't Simon Sinek? That's been around for hundreds of years since the Stoics. Um, however, if they generate ideas in people who have been in the environment, so people who are writing and communicating and thinking who have actually been in the environment, then we can have better outcomes. So for me, I like, I love these people. I mean, again, Carl Sagan's a good example. But he, the, the reason he was so good though was he was a scientist. So unlike, um, like, uh, oh, I've forgotten his name. There, there's a few, particularly in America, there's a few of them have never been scientists, but they're selling science. They're okay, but for me personally, they don't have the credibility that Sagan had or like Brian Cox has in the UK. So I would always look for people who have actually done the job. So for me, when I'm when I advising people, I always make sure, I don't spend a lot of time in it, but I always say to them, I actually did 120 partial autopsies, you know, I actually did work on the human brain, I actually cut brains up, you know, there's one, there's a bit of body up there, which I won't show you. And, you know, I've I've done the job. Yeah. And people that you've just done, you've just smiled at me, they smile and they go, Oh, that's interesting. And actually, then if you say things, they, 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 they give you more credibility that way. And I think if you have a combination of the there's a chap called uh, Jason Silva that I love, who's a Venezuelan American performance philosopher who's never had a job in his life. He's, he's, he's been a philosopher all his life. Yeah? You take his ideas, and I think he's terrific. You take his ideas, and then you talk to people who have actually done the job. You're more likely to have a better outcome. And that's yeah. where there should be the joining of the thinkers with the doers. You, know, you need to have them together, not in conflict with one another, which is what often happens.
0: Okay, so you, you come across um, a video or something uh, or an ad online that tells you buy this course or this thing from this person. Yeah. You would say the best way to discern whether or not that that is valuable is to go and look at the person selling it. Have they achieved what, you're trying to, what they're trying to sell yeah. you?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. In, in my world, in the, in the speaking world, it's really funny. Um, I, what I'm often asked, how, how do you become a successful speaker? And I always say, speak. Right. And they look at you and they go, Uh, you know, if you're going to be any good at speaking, you need to speak. And you need to speak as much as you possibly can. There are many, 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 many speakers. I would say thousands of speakers that make their living by selling speaking courses to other speakers. But they've never had a they've never done a speech in their life. Now, they can be good teachers. They can be good teachers. You know, they don't necessarily have to have done it. But I think the great ones are the ones that have done it before have actually done the job and understand how it feels to have a bad speech, to understand how it feels or how much effort it takes to understand an audience and to create a good speech that that audience is going to really, it's going to get the hooks into them and change them, inspire them to change. So that, that's, I mean, it's, it's, so, it's, it's everywhere. But I always look for credibility. And I think so that social proof that you get from that credibility is really important.
0: Yeah. I mean, these days they've become very good at uh, you know listing testimonials and and other things. So, but uh, yeah, but that is golden advice actually. Thank you. Thank you for that. Yeah. So, can you explain the difference broadly in personality, if there is any, in general, between required to succeed in business versus science?
1: Oh, asking some big
0: questions. (laughs) Yeah. You, you've been, you've, been, you've been you've been I'm not asking for a blanket kind of edict. No, no, no. But yeah, just because you've been in both. So from your yeah. observation, you know what's the a right. successful personality in business versus a successful personality in science? I think those are two different things.
1: Yeah, they are. Um, I would like them not to be. And I'll explain what I mean by that. In the in the scientific community, the ones that really make it are the ones that are curious. right? The, 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 this, And I did say I'd look back to this. They don't use the word fact. I mean, a good scientist will not talk about facts. They'll talk about probabilities. You know, if you jump off the Empire State Building, it's highly probable you will be dead when you hit the ground. right? So even in that extreme example where gravity is involved, they will still say it's highly probable. They won't say... I guarantee you'll be dead, right? So that's the first thing. And the reason for that is they're curious because they say, well, something might happen. You know, and there is actually, there's even a book about how to survive a parachute jump without a parachute because some people have survived, right? So it's it's odd, but there are these exceptions. So curiosity is the first thing. And it would be things like, um, and, and I've had these conversations. I, I my, my specialism was with uh, microscopes and a particular type of microscope. So I was uh, using what's called a laser microscope, which is different to the you know the, the normal by bi- you know you look with your eyes. This was one that used laser light. Um, and I only knew about them. I didn't know about other microscopes, particularly. So even in that world, we would have debates about my microscope being better than your microscope, right? But to be good at my science, I had to understand, or at least answer enough, or ask enough questions to understand where they were coming from. And that's a good scientist, right? A good business person, and this is really difficult to be general about it, tends to be somebody who understands the money, can follow the, and I'm, not, I'm talking about commercial here, I'm not talking about a charity sector or public sector here. They understand the money and how the money works, particularly cash flow. They don't really care too much about everything else. That's the current good business person. So, for example, if you look at somebody like Steve Jobs, who didn't understand technology at all, um, he wasn't a good leader. He was a bully. He was, you know, he, 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 he said himself. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying anything that, that people who have read about him don't understand. But what he did understand was the money. He understood, you know, how to engage the public. He understood how to help the public buy his sexy products, right? The leader of the future, what I would like to see is that being turned on its head and saying that I would love leaders to understand what makes their people motivated. I think employees should come first every time, not customers. And I think that is a change that would need to happen for the scientific brain to come into the business brain. Because a scientist would never say, I want the outcomes to be the driver. They would say, I want the pro- it's about process to them. It's about curiosity to them. Does that make sense? So I think there is some common ground, but as you said earlier, at the moment, they are different. Um, there are very few scientists who move across the business and become successful. There are no business people that I'm aware of that go from business to science. There will be yeah. outliers, but very, very few. Um, so at the moment, they're what um, one famous scientist said, they're in diff- different magisteria. You know, They're just different. Uh, I don't think that's necessarily right uh or optimal rather than right if that makes sense
0: yeah no i mean i you may not know this but i i was in basic science myself too for a while and um what i found is the people who got the biggest breakthroughs um are the ones who questioned the foundations and went yeah. back to the foundations that everybody else just glossed over and accepted yeah. and built on
1: absolutely yeah. uh, i mean the the other thing that you, you've reminded me there, and, and it's interesting. Typical of somebody who's done some science. Um, the other thing in science that, that, that is completely underestimated by the public, not by scientists, is luck. If you look at people who have won Nobel Prizes for science, and there's been research, there's a chap called Harris, does some research in this field. He looked at where the idea came from, and then in, and in, and the data varies. It's between 50 and 70 percent say it was down to luck. But the thing about the scientific mindset is they spotted that luck. They didn't. You just said it. You know, it's like there was a foundation. Something didn't match. Some, why is that not sitting with that theory? And they spot it. And that's the Nobel Prize. Yep. So you're absolutely right. It's the It's the basic stuff. Um, and to be honest, in the business world, in, the, in 20 years working in business, it's nearly always the basic stuff as well. You know, it, it's not highfalutin, complex stuff. A lot of people would like us to think it was complicated. But I mean, if you work in, in, in the financial sector, I mean, come on, is it really that complicated? The answer is no. They make it complicated because it gives them authority to to earn all this cash they make. But if you talk to a, a broker, for example, she'll tell you how simple it is.
0: Yeah, I mean, the the way in the stock market with all these numbers and things that yeah. move, and you, it's like it's almost like a different language.
1: It's, it is, but they, they, they revel in that language because it yeah. gives them credibility to 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 earn the money they earn. But uh, yeah, there's still quite a lot of brokers are in the pub at twelve o'clock every day. Wonder how they can manage that.
0: Hmm. I'll <laughs> tell you, in two thousand and eight, two thousand no, after two thousand eight um you know i was just a, a resident or a trainee in uh, surgery and
1: uh, All right, okay
0: yeah so you know there was this company that manages we used to put like a modest amount of money aside you know we got paid very little and it used to go into stocks and yeah. every quarter or so you they invite you to go into their office and you'll see it's a super fancy office the guy is dressed up you know with a very fancy suit and he shows you these charts with these pies and charts and numbers and Very complicated and talks in very elegant language with words, phrases and you can't understand. And and it was losing consistently. And it was like almost went down to half. And then, well, I just happened to go to Paris for a vacation for five days. And I saw that half the coffee shops there were Starbucks. And I thought, well, the French hate this kind of thing. Yeah. Like you know, especially in American chain, like they like their unique little mom and pop kind of unique little. So if Starbucks is making it like that in Paris, so what I did is I went back and it, you know the value now was almost down to almost a quarter. I sold everything, took it out, put it all on Starbucks and Apple, and it's just it skyrocketed. I was like, I know nothing about any of this. Yes. How could I get? How could I get it right? And that guy <laughs> get it wrong when that's what he does for a living.
1: Yes. Yes, there is. There is actually some uh, research about um, apes throwing darts at a dartboard, and that dictating what stocks people purchased. And the the the, the ape was just as successful as the the broker. It was lucky. It's a chance game. It's a lot. It's a lot game. Um,
0: Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, final question. Um, somebody who is not quite decided what to do in life, which I think is a lot of people starting on and in terms of which fields or they think they'd be good at a few different things that are very diametrically opposed and different from each other. What would your advice be on how to find the perfect field for them?
1: Well, for them, is a difficult part of the question. But in terms of the next 10 years, I think we can make... For the first time in a long time, we can make some quite good guesses about what's going to happen in the next 10 years. We have exponential growth in terms of um, technology development, technology growth. Now, what, what does that mean? Uh, if, you, if forgive me, I'll just explain it a little bit. Um, exponential means it, if I was to take 30 steps from where I'm sitting just now, linear steps, which is the way the human brain works, linear steps, I would end up out in my garden under an apple tree. If I took 30 exponential steps, I could go to the moon and back 20 times, right? I've done the maths, right? 20 times to the moon and back. That's happening with technology. So technology is one area that I would get, I would think people should think about, consider. However, and this is a bit of a cognitive bias of mine, biotechnology is growing at three times technology pace, right? That means you would go to Mars and back 20 times in those 30 steps. So if I was suggesting to anybody, and I've done this with my own children, what to get into, get into biology. Because there are already signs that the biological skill set in some fields has gone to the top, it was never there before. When I graduated from a bi- as a biologist, I-, I struggled to get a job. It's not that case anymore. They're getting jobs. And I would predict very confidently in the next 10 years, well, less than that, five years, there'll be heads of biology in our corporates. So for me, that is a huge opportunity. And I am really jealous of 20-year-olds right now who could get into this biotech crossover field because it's so obvious it's going to be it's going to come so it's coming it's here but it's happening so fast that oh, i'd love to be involved in it a bit more
0: that's incredible i mean when i was going through uh, biology was it's a dead end um, it yeah. was just a, it was a means to an end if only you wanted to get into medicine or pharmacy otherwise it was completely almost right. completely useless
1: you know, a new scientist i don't know if you know a new scientist it's a a, a scientific uh, sort of public scientific journal over here and only two months ago they, they published the top skills required in science in the United Kingdom. Top of the list, biology. Wow. And I, I'm not making that up. That is absolutely evidence-based. Um, so I, I I am so excited about that because I always knew, of course I did, that's why I said it was a cognitive bias, but I always knew that there was something about biology that, that um, I mean, when I when had a, a real laugh with some physicists recently, Um And, you know, they're all standing on top of mountains pointing at galaxies and I said, yeah, it's amazing what physics has done. You know, we can predict, you know, a supernova, we can, we can understand a black hole before we know what they look like. Great. Good for you. We don't know how a mouse works. That's how exciting biology is. We don't know how it works. We have no idea how it works. And, and for me, that was always a, a, a frontier that I got from the minute. I mean, I was 15 when I got it. That, But it was never, ever high enough up on the agenda. But now because of the, 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 the coming together of engineering, biology, and technology, it, with nanotechnology and AI, the biologists are sitting at the heart of that. So I'm really excited about that. That's
0: amazing. On that eclectic note, we'll end. I really thank you for being here. This was really an amazing talk. Thank you.
1: Thank you very, very much. It's been a pleasure, Alan.